Well, good morning. It's good to have everybody here today. If you're in Kidmo, you can head on back to Kidmo. And uh, if you're a leader, go with them. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you. And like you, today is a, there's a lot happening today. Uh, does anybody have any plans for later this evening? A couple of you do? Yeah? So, Super Bowl tonight. I want you all to be praying for David Henderson <laughs> on the front row. David's pulling for the Panthers, as you can tell by his T-shirt, and does not yet know that God only shines on the team that Peyton plays for. So, <laughs> we'll be praying for his soul as he watches this game tonight. Maybe he'll have a miraculous conversion. No. We're, uh, so, I know you got a lot on your mind. I, I'm not going to go through and find out how many in here have a little earpiece in their ear trying to catch all the pregame stuff. Uh, my cousin's up there now. He's... He's going through all the Super Bowl stuff. I don't, know, I don't know how he afforded to go up there, but he's doing it and tweeting all those pictures. And uh, so I don't know what you're doing. I hope you're uh, not listening to the game yet. Anyways, we're going to have some fun tonight. This morning, I want to continue our series on God Is. Uh, and what we're doing through this series is we are going deeper uh, in understanding who God is. And the reality is that for a lot of us, we, we like to talk about God and we love to talk about the aspects of God that feel good, uh, love, mercy, grace. Those are, are feel-good things about God. We like to think about those things because they are all about what we receive from Him. Uh, but there are times we need to dive deeper into the character of God that goes beyond what we feel ourselves and our relationship with Him. Last week, uh, I shared with you a quote from Anselm of Canterbury. And he introduced us to what has become known as the ontological argument for the existence of God, that God is that which nothing greater can be perceived. And so if you can think of the perfect idea of God or the perfect idea of a being or the perfect idea of anything, God is so much more than we can possibly imagine. So then we began to look at the reality and the truth that a God like that deserves to be worshipped. He deserves to be glorified. In fact, he is full of glory, and he is the only one that is worthy of the glory that is due. And so this today, I want to talk to you about another aspect of his character. And what we're going to talk about this week and what we're going to talk about next week really are going to be a two-part thing. They're going to go together. But I want to talk to you a lot about righteousness righteousness. If we are going to have an in-depth study of who God is, we have to begin with the characteristics that he has that form the basis for the way he works with us. Now, we can talk about love and grace and mercy. We can talk about how good God is. But at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, as we approach the creator God who is everything, he is righteous. Now, what's important is that we know that our God is a God who is consistent. Our faith depends on a God who demonstrates consistency in his character and his expectations. We have to have a God who is consistent. I want you to imagine if God was not consistent, what would that look like? What if one day God said, you know what? I'm going to let Jesus be your Savior, and it is through His obedience that you can be saved from your sins and enter into an eternity in heaven. That's today. But what if tomorrow He put out a revision who said, yeah, we, that is over. We're not going to do that anymore. Now we're going to... Are you a good enough person? The consistency of God is crucial for us. We have to know that He's going to be the same. What if today He says, I want you to love your neighbor, I want you to turn the other cheek, I want you to give to those in need, and yet the next day He says, you know what? If they disagree with you, I want you to wipe them out. Just kill them all. What if we had a God who was inconsistent? What about a God who says, you have reached a place where I view you as righteous, and yet tomorrow He says, oh, I've changed my mind. Now, you and I all have friends like that, that they tend to turn on a dime on stuff, and they're frustrating friends to have, right? One day, they're all about one thing. The next day, they're all about the opposite. What if God was not consistent? What if God was not someone that we could trust? God's consistency 
is based in this very reality of his own righteousness. The fact that we can trust him, we can have faith in him, we can believe in him, is all formed in this idea that God is righteous. Now, that's probably not a word that you use regularly in your vocabulary. Now, when I was growing up, you would say something that was cool. It was what? Righteous. You say that today and you get weird looks. But whenever I was growing up, I was a cool ass, righteous man, righteous. So what is righteous? What is righteousness? What are you, I was going to say, is Sean putting something up on the screen? Y'all are remembering something completely different. All right. I'm just really funny. What can I say? All right. His, it is based on righteousness. So what is, what does it mean to be righteous? It's easy to say, well, it just means to be right. Now, the problem is I'm always right. Right? What's so funny today? What am I missing? Okay. What? All right. I'm, we're in two different worlds today. I don't know what's happening. I'm just silly apparently today. All right. And I don't trust, I don't trust our slide operator. That's why when you start laughing, I'm like, what's happening up here? I don't trust him one bit. I don't trust him. Oh. Hey, stop it. Stop it. This is serious work we're talking about. Okay. All right. So what does it mean to be righteous? We can say well, it means to be right. And, and yet I, we really do sometimes think that I'm just, I'm always right. My dad and I, we share this characteristic. And in our family, we like to talk about the fact that, listen, I, I may not be right, but I am never in doubt. I always think I'm right. It may not be, but in my mind, I'm always right. You know, we can think about righteousness in that regard, but that's really not what righteousness is. That's really not what righteousness is. And if we look at God and simply say, God's always right, well, there's truth to that. But righteousness is something bigger than just being right or being correct. But literally, the word righteous means to be correct or often as it is used in Scripture, is to be found to have a correct relationship. Oftentimes when we read through what is righteousness in the Bible, we're not just talking about where there's a right and there's a wrong, and righteousness means you're always right. Well, there is truth to that, but in Scripture it goes beyond that. It talks about your relationship with someone else. Do you have a righteous relationship With God, do you have a righteous relationship with someone else? Are you found to be correct in that relationship? We also find it often used in places talking about just. Are you just? You have been accused of a crime, and yet whenever you stand trial, you have been found to be innocent. Therefore, you are righteous. You have been found to be correct in the complaint. Righteousness means... Oftentimes, not just being right about a question, but being right in a relationship. Now, as we look through what does this mean for us as Christians, what we're going to find is that you and I have a problem with being righteous. Now, but not in the beginning. In the beginning, humanity was found to be righteous in and of itself, that we did not need a Savior. We did not need something to have a right relationship with God. Instead, you and I, based on what God had breathed into the world, we were righteous. When Adam and Eve first entered the world, they were righteous without the need of a Savior. We read about it in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply in all the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. Every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning. 
the sixth day. See, when God first created Adam and Eve, there was not a problem with righteousness. At this point of their life, they were righteous because they had not experienced sin. They knew God. They walked with God. The relationship they had with God was a strong one. It was a physical, visible one because they had not yet experienced the fall. When that happened, that changed everything for us. When that happened, the need for a Savior became evident. Now, as we look at the character of God, we need to ask some basic questions about who He is and is He real. We talked about that last week. And should He be followed? Should He be worshipped? Do we need Him? Within each one of us, we have a basic idea of morality that says something is right or something is wrong. We may not all agree on all the specifics. We may not agree on certain things. But at some baseline level, we recognize that there's a basic right and there's a basic wrong in the world. You shouldn't take something from somebody who's worked for it. You shouldn't just take it and say it's mine now. You shouldn't see somebody who has done something to wrong you and decide they should not live anymore. I'm going to take their life. They're never going to live again on this world. We understand that while that does happen, for most of humanity, recognize that is not a moral way of living life. Whether you believe in God or not, you recognize you shouldn't take someone else's life. There's a basic morality in humanity that is imparted by our creator. So we recognize those basic aspects of who we are and how God has created us. We have to recognize, though, that when sin entered the picture, everything changed for us, and we did not have the ability to reason or rationalize the righteousness of God within our own minds. We were beyond that. That was not something that we were capable of. Before the fall, Adam and Eve lived a righteous life before God without the need of a Savior. The introduction of sin changed everything. The introduction of sin, we have not only a falling of people who were created by God, we have the introduction of some terrible things in the world. With the introduction of sin into creation, righteousness of humanity is destroyed. And we'll actually read here in a minute that righteousness and the ability to be whole has radically shifted. All of creation is affected by this. We see the issuing in of heartache and sorrow. We see sadness and depression enter into the creation. War was not a part of God's initial created order. And yet, as we have moved farther away from him, war between people has increased. I'm a firm believer that sin is not just a spiritual reality. It is a physical reality because God spoke all things into being. All things are spiritual. The introduction of disease, of deformities, of heartache amongst people. All came as a result of sin being entered into this perfect place that God had created. We see an increase of hopelessness. We see people who are dying and they are oppressed. We see some people that will put others into bondage for their own well-being. No matter what it's doing to those that they oppress. We see these things happening. We see the rise of groups around the world where they need power. They want power and they will do whatever it takes to have power. All of these are introduced into this perfect creation. And the righteousness of God begins to disappear among the people living on the earth. See, righteousness is crucial. It is key to everything that exists. It is key to believing who God is and that he has the best for you at the center of his will. Do you believe that God really wants what's best for you? There are times when I was growing up as a kid, my parents wanted what was best for me. I didn't believe it at the time because what was best for me involved limits to what I wanted to be able to do. My parents would limit my behavior and I didn't like it. I didn't feel like they had what was best at heart for me. 
And yet as I grew up and I saw some of my friends that didn't have those limits and I felt like their parents really cared about them, the kind of lives that they ended up leading, I was so thankful my parents chose to have my best at the center of their heart, even though at the moment I didn't see it. See, there's a belief in some of us that we are able to equally understand what is right with God. And therefore, when we disagree with God, we impugn his character. We don't acknowledge our own personal weakness. When we do that, we somehow put ourselves equal with God, which from the beginning has always been the root of sin. Always been the root of sin. If you want to read in Revelation about what happened before all of creation happened, You will read about a war in which an angel wanted to be equal with God and they warred in heaven and they lost and God cast them out. This is where we hear about demons. This is where we learn about demons. We learn about Lucifer. They wanted to be equal with God. If you look at the temptation for Adam and for Eve, it was not a temptation to go do some weird, obnoxious thing. It was that you would be equal with God. And from that point, we have struggled with this tendency to want to be equal with the one who is righteous, yet we can't truly understand what that means. As we have seen all of this, in Romans chapter 8, it says that all of creation was affected by sin. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. She began to understand the stakes of what sin has done into this world. You begin to understand it has changed everything. What was created, what God intended, it has completely been corrupted. And for All of us, we feel it, even if we cannot put our finger on describing it, something is very wrong in the world. Now with media and television and some of the heinous things that are done around us, it's easier to put a finger on those things, right? It's easier to put a finger on those that are terrorizing and killing and murdering and raping. It's easy to say, that is wrong, Not so easy to find in our own lives how sin is carefully weaving this fractured heart of ours so that we don't even realize how far from what God intended we really are. But God is never confused. God's righteousness has never been in question. But if it is, can we truly of her trust in. See, sin removed our righteousness before God. And as a result, God responded. If we were to continue on in the story in Genesis, we're going to find that God walks in the garden after they have taken the fruit that he told them not to eat from. And he asked the question that many of us have been, God has asked us as well, simply this, where are you? As if he doesn't know. Where are you? He forces man to be able to say to him, this is what we have done in spite of your instructions. This is what we have done in spite of your righteousness. This is what we have done in spite of what you told us to do in order to continue in what you have created us for. This is what we've done. And as a result, there was punishment. Now, we would like to believe that God loves us so much that even when we act out of it's sin or anger or, or, or whatever that God just turns a blind eye and it's no big deal. It would be great for us just to say, you know what, God doesn't care. It's no big, you just do what you want. In fact, our society begins to spiral out of control or doesn't begin. It's continuing to spiral out of control because we have believed one fatal thing. And that is none of us should be limited by anything. 
None of us should be limited. I should be free to do whatever I want. And if it bothers you, well, tough. You can, you're free to do whatever you want. The problem is many times what we want hurts others. And those limits are put in place because we are not capable of understanding what God sees as righteous in this world. Sin removed our righteousness before God, and God did respond. We read in Romans chapter 1, For I am ashamed, not ashamed of the gospel, this is Paul talking, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God has made it clear that we are on a path that leads to destruction. He has made that clear. He has shown it in so many ways in our world today, and yet because we are so anxious to live by our own rules, we don't acknowledge it or submit to it. Let me ask you a question. Can a person truly be righteous and ignore injustice? I want you to think about that. Can a person truly be righteous and ignore injustice? What do you think? No, why? Why not? God moves so we should move? What are some other reasons? Can a God who is truly righteous... Ignore injustice. It's a tough question, isn't it? But it really is at the center of many of the debates about God in our world today. Many of the people who will say, well, God is not a good God because if a God is righteous, is he blind to justice? Now, it's clear when we see something unjust happening to someone and someone is hurting as a result of someone else why does god not intercede when we especially see it with children who crimes are committed against children why did god not intercede when we see natural disasters that are happening like in haiti or other parts of the world why did god not intercede you know we can look at those things and we'll say god it would have been just had you interceded but yet in every other area of our life what we say often to God is, don't intercede. Let me be free to do what I want. So at the basis, when we talk about the gospel, needing to have a level of humility to receive it, to be able to say, I will bow before you. I will not request or demand my own rights, but instead I will submit to you. That is necessary because a God who is righteous must also be just. A righteous God would not be righteous if he was not willing to deal with unrighteous sin. Now, a lot of times when we look at something like that, we begin to think that, well, you know, God's angry. He's mad that we messed up. He's mad that we made a mistake. He's mad that David's rooting for the Panthers tonight. He's mad about those things. He may be. I don't know. He hasn't told me otherwise. We often think God's mad. He's mad because we didn't do what he wanted us to do. Yet, how many of us expect someone to do something that we've never clearly communicated what that was? How frustrating is it to be held to a standard that we didn't even know the standard existed? So if God is righteous, how is it possible that he would do something to punish us when we are incapable of reasoning at that level? This is where, I don't want to get too much into where I'm headed now, because we're going to talk about this next week. There is a relationship between righteousness, wrath, justice, and love. They are not separate. They are all together. 
And we're going to weave that story next week. Can you truly be righteous and ignore justice? Should God ignore injustice and unrighteousness in our hearts? Is it fair that a hell exists? Is it fair that some people will go to hell and some people will go to heaven? Is that fair? Not by our culture and society's definition of fair today. It is not fair. Everybody should get the best of everything. But is God righteous if he truly does that? If God doesn't address it, just as God's glory can't be totally comprehended by us, neither can his righteousness. He is so much farther, so much better, so much greater than we can possibly imagine. I want you to know that even though wrath is a response of, that God has towards sin, righteousness does not end in wrath. It ends in justice. God works to right that which is wrong. He works to fix that which is broken. He works to bring righteousness to that which has fallen apart. Righteousness doesn't end in wrath. It's injustice. And it is this justice from unrighteousness that often God reveals his glory. See, God not only deals with unrighteousness, with sin, with an inability to measure up where we're supposed to measure up. He doesn't just deal with that with punishment. He deals with it through a rescue. There is a rescue that is offered for those who cannot be righteous among themselves. This is one of the reasons that you and I find ourselves in a very difficult place in our current culture. We live, you and I, go to work, we go to school, we have friends and neighbors and family members, and sometimes we struggle even within ourselves in a world that says you should not call out sin on someone else. You shouldn't do it because it's wrong, because it's judgmental, because it's mean. Yet why does God, why does his righteousness require a response that leads to justice? Is it because he wants to punish me? God wanted to punish me and God wanted to punish you. He is very well capable of doing that. He doesn't have to submit a request. He doesn't have to jump through hoops. If God wanted to wipe us out, God could do that. If God wanted us to be punished for all of eternity, God could do that. But his righteousness leads to wrath, which leads to justice. Because God wants to rescue those who have been caught in its snare. His righteousness leads to rescue, not to condemnation. This is the very reason that Jesus said, I have come not to condemn you, but to rescue you. So when we understand what that righteousness is and what that righteousness does, it changes the way we respond to God. It changes the way we see ourselves. And when we look into the world and we see that the world is groaning for a Savior, when we look and we see the harm that is done by sin in a person's life, we go and we share truth about sin, not because we want to hurt, not because we want to limit, not because you should do what I say, not because you shouldn't be able to have freedom, but because we recognize the consequence that that unrighteousness has on them and the world. Now, there are times that we are going to make choices that are going to lead to very bad places for you and I. Some of you have been to that and you understand that keenly. You, you made some choices and if you could, you would go back and you would change those choices because of the pain and the hardship it brought you. Perhaps some of us have made choices that have completely changed the course of the life we always thought we would live. And if we could go back and not make that choice again, we would. So one of the realities of love and righteousness is God's love for us says, I am not willing to let you continue in this direction. His righteousness and his love says, I want you to be rescued. Whenever we look at someone and we have our list of sins and, you know, the church today, we have our list of top 10 sins, even though scripture says they're all equal. 
we have our top ten, and we hammer those top ten. And if you really want honest about it, we'll find that the top ten we tend to, to really hammer on are the ones most of us don't struggle with. But we ignore all the other ones. My dad, if he were here, he would say that we should never preach a sermon on gluttony. He's right. We should never do it. It's not fair. Because he and I struggle with gluttony. So we wouldn't put gluttony on the top ten. Nor gossip. That would be in the top ten. But abortion would be. That would be the top ten. Right now the debate is raging about abortion. Should a woman have a right to determine her own care? And yet, how would God view, a righteous God view that decision? Is that really the right question? Is the right question really whether you have freedom over your own body? There are a few people that just basically ask, should a person have freedom over their own body? That Who would say no to that? But yet the issue of abortion, it leads to the fracturing of families. It leads to the fracturing of hearts. It leads to the fracturing of communities, the fracturing of nations. Because it changes the way we view human life. So the issue is not whether you should have the freedom to be in charge of your body. We would all say you should have the freedom to be in charge of your body. But we see the, the effects that it has on people. When God looks in righteousness over our sins and our lives, he's not looking at how bad a person you are because you fell for it. He's looking at the destruction that is happening in your life because of that sin. And in his righteousness, he wants you to be rescued from that. See, there are so many things. If we approach sin, not based on I'm right and you're wrong, but based on we're all wrong. <laughs> we are all wrong. And God is piecing us back together. Because all of that sin is just leading to pain. That's where sin leads. Sin leads to pain. Well, if I want to go out and I want to have a good time and I want to do whatever I want, I should be able to do that. Well, guess what? You can do that. You can do that. Now, there may be consequences after, but you can do that. But how many of those times have you gotten up the next morning and said, ah, that was great. I feel great. That's exactly what I want to do again tonight. It leads to a fracturing fracturing of the heart. And if God is a God who is truly righteous, is he okay letting us just go on continuing to be fractured? I say no. But there are times that God and I disagree. And he has yet sat down with me and had me straighten him out on a few things. Never happened. But I constantly am straightened out by him through his word, through other believers, and through finally being faced with the destruction of making the wrong choice. Can a person be truly righteous and ignore injustice? No. It can't happen. A person who is truly righteous will want to bring justice to those who don't have it. God's righteousness is not fulfilled through punishment. God's righteousness is fulfilled through the deliverance from unrighteousness. Now, as we read through Scripture, we'll find that God has done this in a couple of different ways. In the beginning, the law was given so that we would recognize this in and of ourselves. If God is so far up here and we're so far down here, we can't possibly meet in the middle. I mean, God is here and we're down here. But God wanted us to be aware that there is a problem within us. And so he gave us the law. And Romans 10.3 says this, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. We read last week about the glory of God and Moses went up and he received the Ten Commandments and then he came back down and he found that everyone who he was in leadership over, they had given up on God, they had built an idol, he broke the Ten Commandments, cried out to God, said, let me see your glory. And as he went up and received the second set of tablets, God said, I will let you see the back of me, you cannot fully comprehend my full glory, but I will put my hand over you. And once I pass by, then I will let you have a glimpse. And it's said that Moses was so overwhelmed by what he saw, he literally, literally glowed. 
being exposed to his glory. We had those Ten Commandments, not as that they would lead us to a place where we could be righteous again, that we could be correct in our relationship with God. He gave us the Ten Commandments so we would recognize how far off we really are. And it was only when Jesus came that we were truly able to experience righteousness. We were incapable of living out the law. Romans chapter 4 says this, starting with verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offering, uh, excuse me, offspring, that he would be heir to the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there is no law. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully conceived that God was able to do what he had promised. Verse 22 says that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted for him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The story of Abraham is really an interesting story. If you're not familiar with the whole story of Abraham, it's really worth going back and doing some research. A promise by God that if he would get up and go and he would follow God, he would be the father of many nations. Yet went over hardship and through hardship, through hardship, but he had faith. And even in a time when Jesus had not yet come, his faith was credited as righteousness because righteousness did not mean that Abraham did everything just right. Righteousness meant that he had a correct relationship with God through his faith. Now, if we were to jump ahead of the story, we were to read through the Gospels, we'll find that that faith that we have is in God sending his son to die for us. That righteousness leads to wrath, wrath against sin, wrath against that which hurts people. And that wrath leads to deliverance through Jesus Christ. See, if you're sitting here today where the rubber meets the road on something like this, is I've really got a couple of goals. Goal number one is you need to understand the deeper under deeper pieces of what the gospel really is. We really need to understand what it is that we believe, not just through catchphrases, not through a couple of very popular verses, but we really need to understand what is at play here in the world, what's really happening in our lives. It's where Scripture says you should be growing deeper in your faith. You should not be staying right here at the surface, but you should really be going deeper in your understanding, not just so you will understand, but when you talk to somebody else, you need to be able to explain this to them. If there are any teachers in the room, you'll know you've never really learned anything until you were able to teach it to somebody else. So that's one of my goals. One of my goals is that you, you dive deeper into these ideas. And if there's nothing else for you, and this is really all more than you really want to digest on this Sunday morning before we go watch the Super Bowl tonight, I would still lead you back to the basic question, can a God who is righteous ignore injustice? That question alone, by wrestling with it, will take you places in your faith you never would have gone without it. It will change the way you see God. It will change the way you see yourself. And it will change the way you see God being active in the world today. 
If God is righteous, can he ignore injustice? It also will lead us to a very uncomfortable question. This is my second goal for this. The second one is, is what do we do with this personally? Can I truly be righteous if I ignore injustice? See, we're hearing all these accounts on the news of these horrible things students are doing in high schools around our country, some very close to us in our own community. And yet, how many people were aware of what was going on and did not step in and stop it? But I didn't do it. I wouldn't part. I wouldn't do anything. I'm innocent. It was them. But yet, if I see it and I do nothing to stop it, am I innocent? We try to teach our kids one of the hardest lessons we try to teach them when they're in school is when you see somebody who's getting picked on, you are their friend. (laughs) You come to their rescue. It may be uncomfortable for you, but that's what we do because that's what Jesus did for us. When we begin to understand righteousness, it's not enough to simply have a playbook by which we explain and define faith. It has to be the way in which we live our lives moving forward. Righteousness doesn't just become that thing that we say, yeah, well, we're messed up. (laughs) Thank you for Jesus. I'm still going to be messed up. Well, there's truth to that. When you and I do not strive to live according to the righteousness that God communicates to us, then we are innocents, right? Standing back here saying, what, me? But yet we didn't intervene. This is where it's going to be hard for us moving forward as a church. I don't know, a year or two ago, I made a statement in here, or not in here, in our, where we were before. I made a statement that the church is going to have a very hard role to play in these coming years. One year is to co- correctly communicate the gospel. That's been the goal of the church from the very beginning. We want to correctly communicate the gospel. But because of the way that the church has become mired in this religious muck, and so many people don't even understand salvation yet call themselves a Christian, one of the growing roles of the church is going to be to let people know when they bought into something that's not real or true. And unfortunately, we have helped create that. You and I cannot stand in a world And keep our eyes closed or keep our mouths shut when there's injustice happening, hurting people, if we're going to follow the righteousness of God. We cannot do that. What we don't have to do is get on TV and say, all those people are going to hell. Because you are one of those people. (laughs) And I am too. We have to change the way we, and we're going to spend more on this next week. We have to change the way we talk about righteousness. But you and I have to respond to the righteousness of God in a way that says, we, although are incapable of the righteousness of God, we will align our lives with what he has shown us. And when we look at other people who are not, we will not judge them. That is God's job. However, we will communicate to them there is a better way through love. We have to do that. If we don't, and we say, you know, it's just not my place. It's not my place. Do what you want. Be free. Okay. I'm going to love you. I don't care. I'm not going to say anything. It's just, you know what? I'm just going to sit over here in the corner. It's not my place. I would submit to you that that is no different than the students on the back of the bus who don't stop something happening to their friends while they watch it happening. Now, what we have done in the church to really hurt our witness in the world is we have jumped on that as in them versus us. There is no them versus us. There's just us. And when we put them in the category of them versus us, we put ourselves in a self-righteous category that we love to do. And when we do that, we don't point them to the righteousness of God. We point them to this broken shell that we have become. When what God says is, point them to me. I am what is whole. God's righteousness is not fulfilled through punishment. But through the deliverance from unrighteousness. This is what is justice. One of the ways that we have to understand righteousness, and I'm going to close out with this. We read through Scripture, there is a doctrine that is very important for you to understand when it comes to your own righteousness. You see, when you become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, righteousness is imputed to you. Not imparted to you. There are many things we read about in Scripture that God imparts to us. Impart meaning He gives it to us. It's ours. 
If you really want to understand some of the deeper understanding of righteousness, you find that through Jesus Christ, his willingness to be obedient to death on the cross so that we could be saved, it is because of that obedience you and I are imputed with righteousness. I know it's another word you use all the time, right? It literally means what we have belongs to another. He has imputed it to us, yet it is not ours. We do not own it. We are not capable. Now that I'm a Christian, I am righteous. That doesn't happen. (laughs) It is imputed to us. It's His. It belongs to Him. And He's willing to let us be seen as righteous, even though it's not our own righteousness. It is only through Jesus. That leads to humility for the believer. And I'm still not righteous, yet he sees me as righteous because of Jesus. It is his righteousness that he is offering to me. We have to understand the difference. We have to understand that that means we don't judge others. This is not the same as when we talked, I don't know, it's probably been a year ago, and we did the, our Brother's Keeper series. It's not the same as when we look at a believer and say, hey, listen, you're headed back into that area that is really destructive What I'm talking about when we don't judge others is we don't come to the place and say, you know, well, you're really a bad person. You're going to hell. <laughs> that's bad. Because that's exactly how it comes across. No matter how we say it, how much care or how sad we look, it comes across as, you're going to hell and I'm not. Pie, you're screwed. That's how it comes across. We don't judge others. But the rubber meets the road is also where we deal with our own sin in our lives. I am not stupid enough to believe that because I know Jesus, I no longer deal with sin in my life. When we begin to understand righteousness in this context, it begins to change the way that we deal with sin in our own lives. It begins to be a filter by which we look at our actions and the things that we ourselves are investing our time and resources in. Is this a good place for me to be? Is this a good thing for my eyes to be seen? Is this a good way to spend my time? Is this a good group of people to do whatever they're doing, to just fit into their group? We begin to look at our actions differently. Next week, we're going to talk about an undeniable link between God's righteousness and God's love. I will tell you that because We cannot reach a point where we fully understand God's righteousness as we're talking about it. You will never reach a point where this stuff just becomes second hat. I mean, you just just do it naturally. There will always be a struggle in your time of prayer, in your time of study, in your time of reading. There's always going to be a struggle to understand, God, what do you say is correct here? Not what do I say. We're also real bad about reading what other people say. And that's why the Bible sits on the shelf collecting dust and we'll read all the bestsellers coming out of the local Christian bookstore. Yet we don't go to the place where God says. We just want to hear what other people have said about what God says. It changes the way we look at our faith. We become more serious. We want to know. We want to act accordingly. Just so there's no misunderstanding what I'm saying when we talk about wrath. God hates sin because of the effect it has on his creation. On you and I. God doesn't hate us. The person that is diametrically opposed to everything that we believe in as Christians. God doesn't hate them. God hates what sin does. In his creation. When you and I ignore sin. I want you to understand this very real. We ignore sin. We are allowing it to ravage other people. Unfortunately some of us will let it ravage ourselves. When you begin to comprehend God's righteousness. You are going to want to embody it in your life. You're not always going to do it right. I, I often mess it up. But you're going to want to embody it. And finally, if we were just to 
narrow all this down to a catchphrase, God is righteous, and we are not without Jesus. I'm thankful that he has given me an opportunity to be righteous in his eyes through his son. Pray with me. Father, God, these are hard things that it's difficult for us to truly comprehend what all the implications are or exactly what you want to do with this kind of information. I thank you that we can trust that you are a God who is, a, who is consistent, a God who doesn't change, a God who really cares for us and wants what's best for us. God, I thank you that despite all our failures, you still have rescued us through Christ. I pray that in this room you would help us to develop the kind of humility that sees, the sin, sees sin in the world and allows us to address it in a way that shows love to others, not in a way that shows judgment. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes for our own activities, where we're taking ourselves, where we're placing our eyes, where we're spending our resources and our time and our money. I pray that you would help us to view that through the lens of your righteousness, the way that you view this. Father, help us to see sin not as that enticing thing that looks exciting and fun, but instead that thing that leads to a fractured heart and to hopelessness. Help us to view the world through your eyes, not our own. Help us to respond to your words with the intent that you have through great love for us. Father, I thank you for your love. And I thank you, though, you could have given up on us all those years ago in the garden with Adam and Eve. You could have just wiped the slate clean and started over. You have given us an opportunity for, for being rescued. I thank you for the gift of Jesus. I thank you for the gift of redemption. I thank you that though I've not yet earned or I have no way been able to deserve the gift of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. I've not deserved a future in eternity with you. I've not deserved hope in a world full of hopelessness. I've not earned any of that. I've not deserved. There's nothing I can do for it. I thank you that through your love, because you saw the effects of sin in my life, that you offered a rescue. Help us to receive that in the way that it's given. Help us to view you and as who you really are, not as just some big idea that we don't ever even try to understand, but we see you the very best that we're able. And God, I look forward to the day we pass from this place to be with you forever. And though we can only see shapes and images, we can only see a foggy image now that one day we will see you with crystal clarity and we will be able to know and understand all that is just beyond our grasp right now. Father, we look forward to the day that all of this passes away. The results of sin in our hearts, this result of sin in our friends, the result of sin in our families, in our world, that they will end. And we will be with you in your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.